Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is... Stephen Mugi. Stephen, it's great to see you after such a long time, uh, albeit we are in different places. And I'm wondering if we could start by just chatting about what's on your mind at the moment, what you're thinking about, what's preoccupying you. Thanks for inviting me onto the podcast, Toby. Um, I'm talking to you from Adelaide in South Australia. Uh And so what I'm thinking about at the moment, actually, is um, kind of stage of career stuff. Mm. Um, I've been in the game for nearly 50 years and not employed full time. I have a one day a week job at a place called the Noolungur Research Institute in Broome, WA. Uh Western Australia. Uh Western Australia. It's a long way from Adelaide. And because of my, um, you know, the length of time I've been working in Indigenous studies, what I'm thinking about at the moment is how things have changed. Um, When I started off as a doctoral student, it was only white men, mostly, some women, who worked on Aboriginal studies or Indigenous studies or anthropology. Um, And things have changed so much in the interim that um, I'm now sort of happily redundant. (laughs) <laughs> that there are there are huge numbers of young indigenous people in the academy doing law doing all sorts of professional middle class type jobs which wasn't the case back when i started in the um in the 70s so this is a good development and it it induces a new protocol like i wouldn't start a um, a research project i sort of wait to be invited in the case of my connection with people in Broome, where I've been working, well, since my doctorate, um, it's a kind of embedded uh, relationship. So um, I'm kind of a, they treat me as a member of the family, call me uncle mm-hmm. and things like that. So the protocol of getting involved is, doesn't, that when in relation to that group, it doesn't arise. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't invite myself to, um, to head off and do a, a research project with anyone else without being asked. So the ethics have shifted, and they've shifted in part, in a sense, with a shift in class relations, in that there is now an indigenous middle class in Australia, uh, I guess you're saying, in a way that wasn't the case 50 years ago. Is that right? Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. A middle class with all the um, accoutrements of that class, like... Yeah. Uh, Whereas previously um, there weren't many Indigenous people writing books. Now the you know access to to academic English or or the English of uh, for writing fictions or whatever is is um, is kind of uh, ubiquitous for for this particular class. This is not to say that there's not a um, a lot of Indigenous people who are um, suffering still under the uh, after effects of colonisation and are. Um, suffering in terms of poverty, lack of education, health, what they call the gap. You know, there are these various gaps that um, politicians occasionally talk about trying to to close these gaps, but uh, it seems to be a slow process. Right. Yes, and of course there's no suggestion that there's some sort of magical meritocratic path for Indigenous people uh, that didn't exist before. But I guess it is true that there, as you say, there are now lots of 
public intellectuals who are Indigenous in Australia, from what I can tell. I mean, I haven't lived there for 30 years, but it seems as though that's the case. And the change for you is that, as you, the way you're putting it, you don't initiate projects now, other than with the group where you're, in a sense, a member of the family, in a way that you would have done up until when? Well, possibly until the um, until the turn of the century. Um, and was there a particular event that triggered this change in your personal no, just awareness? That, well, there would have been there would have been um, complaints uh, directed at um, at white people doing indigenous studies without um, without seeking out the uh, permission or um, collaborative relationships, forging them. So. There are kind of protocols that you have to go through to to even start um, even start the process of doing that kind of research. And from my point of view, I I sort of summarise them into, well, I'm just going to take a back seat until I'm invited, which does happen occasionally. Right, right. And in a sense, that is part of decentering white masculinity from relevant projects, isn't it? Yes, it's uh, there is an essentialist element to it that um, Indigenous people will, um, well, maybe strategically essentialist, that put in the position of being able to run their own research projects and use their own voices and find um, a language for that voice. Mm. Um, that puts them in a position of um, possibly doing something different from what would have been... Um, Positive, positive as social science, for instance. Right, but in your case, that wasn't really your game. You, it, amongst many other things, sought to give a voice or and a written presence and an artistic one to people conventionally excluded from public life in Australia. Uh, you weren't doing conventional anthropology or other kinds of social science, although you were doing ethnography of a sort. I mean, I'm thinking of your collaborations with oral storytellers, for example. Yes, yeah, so a significant book for me was the book called Reading the Country with the subtitle, Deleuzean subtitle, Introduction to Nomadology. And that was written with uh, an Indigenous elder from WA, Brim, WA, called Paddy Rowe and a Moroccan landscape painter. So the um, three authors, um, and that shared authorship was actually pretty innovative at the time. It's happening much more often now. Um, and so that was just me figuring out how to um, how best to um, to put this the teachings of this old man front and centre, put his name on the cover and transcribe his oral narratives as he told them without turning them into um, standard English. And it was a prize-winning book, Reading the Country. I'm thinking that it came out almost 40 years ago. Yeah. It'll be 40 years next year. And it was, to use an expression that wouldn't have been used at the time, I guess, multimedia, because of this combination of sort of whitefella prose art and indigenous storytelling yeah yeah so the the uh, 
the conceit was reading the country was well, what is this place? And it was a place called Rabak Plains. What is this place anyway? And um, you could look at a number of kind of discourses or technologies like landscape painting and um, come up with a um, a range of possible readings. So it was kind of coming out of uh, literary literary theory and cultural cultural studies as well. In terms of influences on you, you just mentioned Deleuze. My sense is that in recent times, one of your key interlocutors and someone you've translated is more Bruno Latour. Ah, uh, yes. So this gives me an opportunity to talk about the third book I did with Old Paddy Row, which is called The Children's Country. And it came out uh, only a couple of years ago. But it was supposed to come out immediately after that earlier book. And uh, when I'd finished when I'd finished reading The Country with Paddy Rowe, I said to him, we'd done a couple of books together. And I said, well, that's it then. I guess we've finished. And he said, no, you've got to do one more book. Oh, I said. And he said, it's going to be about a different part of the country, north of Brim. And... Uh, it's a uh, it's a country that I've been asked to look after, to have custodianship, custodianship over. It's not my traditional uh, tribal country, but I'm the guy who's supposed to look after it. And so he took me up to that country and we started recording stories. And, um, and then I got distracted. I was bringing up a small family in Sydney a long way away and so on. And the book uh, latched. But by 1988, he had a better idea for how to um, look after that country, protect it, and um, engage Indigenous epistemologies on country. He had to protect it because he knew that um, developers and um, mining industry people were interested. That's the reason he didn't want big industry. So um, his better idea was to start something called the Lurijari Heritage Trail, which is a walking trail that takes people, tourists, students, maybe 30 people in each um, walking trail, from Broome, walking up the beach um, to 80 kilometres north, stopping along the way and so on. So that uh, immersive activity for those people who are um, involved in that the tourists or students or whatever, is actually a, um, a pedagogical experience. The, the, the trail is being led by, initially by Paddy Rowe and then by his descendants. And uh, it's very relaxed. Um, it's not, uh, it doesn't have a strict schedule of, you know, at 10 a.m. we will do this and so on and so forth. It's it's relaxed. And If this is Tuesday, have... it must be Belgium. That's right. The participants are actually no doubt who's in charge of the knowledge when right. you're walking it. Whereas if you do Indigenous studies in a seminar room in university, it's kind of the book is it's got the authority, the text. So this was quite a different, uh, and it's a kind of approach that's, that's gaining currency in various ways, uh, reviving these walking trails. And I've got a research project doing that. Um, at the moment, so the um, the immersive experience for these uh, participants on the trail, and it's been going since the late eighties. So there are hundreds of people who've been on it. Had its payoff politically 
when Woodside Energy, huge uh, fossil fuel company, um, in about 19, um, in the early 90s, decided they wanted to build a liquefied gas plant on the beach, on the trail. It would have been like just a huge factory, like several kilometers square. Um, total blood on the landscape. Anyway, so there was a there was a uh, a popular campaign. Locals in Broome, but people who'd been on the trail and had sort of opened their hearts, so to speak, to the country and felt for the country and uh, knew something about it, came back to help and they joined the um, the protest camp. And some of them were lawyers and some of them were artists and some of them were media people. So there was a uh, campaign for over five years and they won the they won the battle and stopped uh, Woodside from building that thing. Wow, that is a great, great story. My next question is, you told it in response to my mentioning the big man's name, BL. Yes, because I did write the book in the end. And I puzzled about what kind of structure I would give it. And then I thought, well, it's logical. I should make out I'm walking the trail. And so chapter one was day one, not chapter one. And so we had eight eight days instead of eight chapters. And each chapter dealt with a different kind of knowledge, history, economics, politics, art, uh, what I mentioned, history, what else? Science. So mm-hmm. each of those days was engaging with the kind of um, negotiations or possible conflicts or collaborations between the indigenous knowledge that is revealed on the trail versus the knowledge that um, that white fellows generally bring in when they are working in relation to indigenous people. So science, for instance, yeah. Um, Broke down, broke down uh, different kinds of science. Um, citizen science, which was engaged counting whales and looking for uh, endangered species. Citizens were involved in that. Privatized science, where the uh, environmental studies were being done for Woodside by highly paid um, environmentalists to come up with the right result. To prove that there was no ecological impact. Mining from a beach. No, we can't I, find any green. We can't find any green turtles on this beach. Um, and then, uh, well, public science is more like what we're supposed to do in publicly available knowledge in universities. So that was that's Latourian because in his uh, in his magnum opus on uh, inquiry into the modes of existence, he too goes through these kinds of knowledge. Um, in order to um, do an anthropological self-portrait of Western society, so to speak. I wonder if we could pick up on on Latour and how your connection with him developed, because you became, I think it's fair to say, one of his key interlocutors into the Anglo world, even though he spoke very good English and had his own uh, presence. But... In the last few years of his life, I think you were one of the most important uh, collaborators. Oh, I wouldn't say one of the most important, but we did do a um, a book called Latour and the Humanities. I did that with Rita Felsky, 
whom you know. And so she was at the University of Virginia uh, at the time. And I wanted to do a book actually called Latour and Cultural Studies for the Edinburgh series. And when I mentioned this to her, she said, oh, well, maybe we should do something for new literary history. And then that became a conference, and then it became a book. So um, we tried to introduce Latour to the humanities, and but it's not had a huge take-up. So where would you say his main audience is? Studies of science? Yeah, so STS, Science and Technology Studies, he was a key figure in the development of that, sort of at the actor network theory time of his career. Mm. But then he found a different um, audience with the urgency of climate change, at the same time as kind of alienating um, people who have a more Marxist orientation of his generation, who wouldn't make the shift that he did towards the agency of non-humans in history um, and continued to want to say, well, class struggles are human-to-human struggles and uh, it's just a distraction to talk about the agency of the non-human. That problem of Marxism where, (laughs) astonishingly, the material world is devalued (laughs) and material relations are devalued and conflict is devalued uh, despite... (laughs) all the claims made to the contrary. Yes, and the other thing I guess he did that was very important uh, was that uh, he didn't just do this in academic contexts. Latour also wrote a lot for the papers and did lots of interviews. So he may not have a big impact in the Anglo humanities, though I, I, I wasn't aware of that. But he's had a big impact on public debate in the French-speaking world, and in many ways in the English-speaking world as well, hasn't he? And you've been part of that, um, you you know, in making sure that some of those very pungent, uh, imposing op-eds are made widely available. And I really hope that there will be a book collecting his op-eds. It might be a fairly slim book, but I think it would be very powerful. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Um... So, yeah, that, that is important. He, he was a public, um, certainly a big public figure in, in France. And then that, with the translations that were done by me and others, they, that was spread more widely in the Anglo world. Um, but he also did his um, exhibitions. Yes, the art world. That's important. Yes. Tell us more about that. Well, so his friend uh, Peter Weber at Karlsruhe, where they have a museum, what kind of museum it is. It might be a science and technology museum. So they put on four exhibitions there. The first one was Making Things Public. And the last one was Critical Zones. And in between you had uh, Reset Modernity. So these these were art installations with all sorts of artists involved. um, Artworks brought in, no doubt, at great expense. and, uh, And then large tomes produced... Uh, with um, all sorts of intellectuals writing essays in relation to the uh, the ideas, people like Dipesh Chakrabarti and and others. Um, so I think Latour's um, motivation was, um, well, he used the word dramatisation. If an issue like climate change is a big problem, 
it's not enough to sort of uh, lean on the reliability of facts and say, okay, here are the facts. And the scientists can say that until, you know, the cows come home and nobody will do anything. Or the cows stop sure eating methane. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, the, um, you know, there was the anti, uh, anti, dis- the disinformation campaign. So he wanted to dramatize the situation through art. And he also talked about it as a way of, well, the language he used was, everything's changed. We're living in an epoch we don't, we can't understand. We don't know how to understand it or feel about it. Um, we, in a sense, we don't belong in this transformed world. And he thought art was the key to, you've written a book called Technologies of the Self. So transformation of subjectivities to be receptive to these kinds of issues. You mentioned cultural studies a moment ago and how in this book that your special issue of new literary history that you co-edited, it was displaced by humanities. Do you affiliate with cultural studies at the moment? I do. I was um, just at the Cultural Studies Association of Australasia Conference here in Adelaide, and I was on the um, on the organising committee, and I uh, registered as a volunteer. Apparently, I didn't need to, but because I registered as a volunteer, I found myself helping out at sessions with the technology, which was hilarious because I didn't know how to work it. Anyway, the um, the Australian conference wasn't huge. It was maybe 80 people, um, but it's still ticking over. And um, the um, there was a lot of uh, gender and transgender stuff, a lot of Indigenous stuff, a little bit of climate stuff. Um, so, yeah, uh, next year it will be at the Indigenous Studies Centre at Macquarie University. First time it's been hosted by an Indigenous Studies Centre. Again, evidence of what I was saying right at the beginning about the burgeoning of um, the burgeoning of the capacity for Indigenous people to do their own versions of Indigenous studies and kind of um, not leave behind the anthropological uh, decades, but um, transform, transform them for their own needs. Given that most people listening to this will probably not be from Australia, where would you recommend folks go uh, who are interested in reading Indigenous theory from Australia and Indigenous research? Are there some particular authors that you'd suggest folks should seek? Um, Yeah, so they could read um, Aileen Morton Robinson, uh, talking back to the white woman. So that's a kind of um, a whiteness studies thing that uh, has an argument with white feminists. So that was a significant intervention, but that's uh, over 10 years ago now. Um, you have uh, uh, Evelyn Araluen, who's an editor of Overland magazine, one of the editors, writing speculative fiction and essays and all sorts of poetry too. She's the kind of um, Eve, the next generation down from Aileen Morton Robinson and um, is uh, yeah, vigorously campaigning for um, 
uh, well, for a stronger presence of Indigenous studies among people of her generation. She'd be about, I don't know, early 30s. Mm -hmm. So there's now, two people I can think of. No, that's great. Thank you. One other area where you've made a contribution is fictocriticism. And I'm thinking of your book, Joe in the Andamans, I think it's called. Yeah. And I wonder if you could explain for people who may not be familiar with the term what's meant by it and what place it has in your life, in your work. It's a um, genre of um, academic stroke, non-academic writing. And so it emerged out of the conjunction of um, creative writing programs in universities. And so there was a, at one point, creative writers, novelists, didn't really have much to do with universities, at least in Australia. In America, it goes back much earlier to the Iowa workshops and so on. Um, but uh, in Australia, it was a relatively recent phenomenon, and I found myself caught up in it, having written that Reading the Country book that won some minor non-fiction prize, found myself landed teaching creative writing at uh, New, South, New South Wales Institute of Technology, and I immediately had imposter syndrome. Like, <laughs> what? Me? Creative writing? I, don't, I haven't written a novel. I've only written about two poems. <laughs> so as I started to think about how to write, I uh, somehow organically melded the um, the stories, storytelling and arguments. Um, US readers will be familiar with Maggie Nelson's work, and that's, I think, similar, a similar genre. So too is the anthropologist Mick Tausig, who uses the term fictocriticism. Um, and there are others. That I think the, the genre has its origins in Canada, a woman called Jean Randolph back in the 80s. But we took it up in Australia, some of us. It's still a fairly minor thing, but I really like it because of its... Um, because of the way it organises point of view. For instance, um, you want to make an argument, but you also want to tell a story mm. in the process of making the argument. So instead of um, being positivist and saying, here's the stuff I know, you might tell the story about how you came to know and why it was significant to you. And a book called No Road I wrote, engaged with Indigenous Australia. It was a travelogue. I'm travelling around in the car trying to engage with uh, Indigenous uh, knowledge, sometimes making things up, sometimes it's true to life. Mostly the uh, fiction is um, kind of innocent. I just put scenes in a more interesting place than where they might have actually taken place. This sounds like my so one of... <laughs> There's a joke in that book that you might, uh, might amuse your listeners, which is... Um, my character, my narrator, is um, imagines uh, someone travelling to an indigenous, remote indigenous community. So, if you imagine the uh, the locals there in the community seeing the dust of a car approaching in the distance, and they turn to each other and say, "Ah, oh, who could that be? Might be that plumber we've been waiting for. That would be really useful to fix our plumbing." And then the guy arrives. And he says, uh, hello. And they say, hi, who are you? And he says, I'm a cultural critic. I've come to fix your representations. 
ironic thing that because of our long friendship, I'm aware that you're a very practical person around the house and the yard and so on and could indeed do some plumbing if called upon. Now, you mentioned imposter syndrome and how you experienced it when you were called upon to teach creative writing. Is that something you've experienced in other contexts? Oh, pretty much all the time. Um, uh, it's um, it's it's a sort of psychic thing that you you always feel yourself to be lacking in relation to what you think you should be doing or what you think you should have achieved. Or um, otherwise, you would uh, I don't know, do nothing. But for example, I'm thinking about the particular vulnerability of fieldwork, and oh, yes. Even with the armature of the right way of doing ethnography in inverted commas, the old social science research council development models from the US and the Ford Foundation from the 50s, or before that, the British social anthropology tradition or the French ethnology one, even with that armature, people do feel disarmed when they do feel work, and so they should. Yeah, so they... um... You're put, you put yourself in a vulnerable position. Um, you know, you could get, you could get criticized or told to piss off or, um, or you could be at a, at a loss to know what to do next. Um, and so there are all sorts of interesting, um, problems that arise. Um, in my case, once I, um, I was uh, working, started to work with the old man I, worked with a lot, Paddy Rowe, and I'd already read critiques of anthropology. And when he invited me to go to an initiation ceremony, I sort of said, oh, no, no, I I don't want to impose on your secret uh, stuff. And then, you know, later it dawned on me, I'd been invited. And so I should have gone. He wasn't just uh, saying it for nothing. He was inviting me for a reason. Out of out of generosity and um, inclusion. Yes, and that so is a... yeah. So there's something valuable about imposter syndrome in the self questioning that it leads to, the doubt, and the admission of vulnerability. Because you have put yourself again and again in your career into situations where you are meant to be the knowing subject, but actually in many ways are not. Indeed, yes. So I like that. That's that's um, maybe I've been able to get away with it because I've had tenure or something. <laughs> um, but there's something about that naive inquirer that I think is very important in your work and helps to make it stand out. Right at the beginning of our conversation, you said that you were looking back at what you'd done, what you'd been involved in, your trajectory as a writer and a teacher and so on. Are there things that you regret looking back at that? Are there things that you particularly still want to do? Um, Maybe I regret not, um, not having done more creative work. Um, in fact, I might, now that I've got a bit more time, I might actually do another uh, version of a fictocritical kind of novel thing. Um, but generally, it's been a kind of accidental um, um, 
swerving from one thing to another, from linguistics and semiotics into cultural studies, and then more recently into environmental humanities, but not leaving the cultural studies entirely behind. Um, and the um, and of course the particular genre of writing with ficto criticism. Um, I just uh, sort of been reinvent myself marginally at every turn, and um, I'm happy to do that. Uh, Is there anything from your quite technical linguistics background that you still rely on that you find useful? The uh, yeah, so understandings of figures of speech, for instance, um, um, like uh, even even com complex concepts like irony. Um, people don't really know how it works linguistically, generally. And they use the word when they're referring to a coincidence. Isn't it ironic that? But it's not ironic at all. It's just a coincidence. So having a good grasp of the figures of speech that I guess I learned in comparative literature classes as well as in uh, linguistics and semiotics. The, um, but the structuralist element of semiotics is something I like to, I like to marvel at at its success back in the 60s. Um, and yet I'm highly critical of it in today's world where the nature-culture opposition that was was axiomatic in Levi-Strauss, for instance, looked, looks like a big mistake. And Latour really does explode those notions, I think, with yeah. the equal weighting that he gives to text, society, nature, and the fact that they are so mutually imbricated. And uh, just as he problematizes, as you say, a certain kind of Marxism. Where was, um, um, was Levi-Strauss's structures, he asks, somewhere or other? He says it's not, they're not in the jungles of the Amazon. They are on the index cards in his office in the Collège de France. Well, he might also say that they're in our minds, Levi Strauss, if he were there to respond. Oh, yeah, he, would, he was very cognitive, you know, which is another complaint I have about structuralism and uh, and that Chomsky version, the early Chomsky version of uh, syntactic structures, very uh, cognitively. Well, people thought it was a revelation because they thought it was, this is telling us how, how minds work, like languages. Yeah, right. yeah. And it's some of that early Chomskyan work was funded by the Pentagon, which people rarely <laughs> note when they valorize his later, in, also very interesting, but completely separate work on the media. Just yeah. getting back to the, the blend of these genres of writing, in a sense that formed part of a postmodern understanding People don't use that word postmodern now very much, other than to describe art and architecture and some bits of literature, because there's a much greater emphasis on truth as something desirable, attainable, and emulable. So many of the sorts of people on the cultural left who would once have argued for massive relativism of truths, now say there is climate change. And look, we know because these geophysicists and others have proved it. 
So the scepticism, even cynicism about big science from the immediate post-Cold War era seems to have dissipated in favour of a new kind of faith. Interesting. The um, Yeah, so and the, the whole Trumpian post-truth thing it certainly gives us pause if we wanted to start talking about relative truths. You're immediately walking into a trap, aren't you? Um, but um, on the other hand, I would argue that um, dealing with a problem like climate change, a big wicked problem or a hyper object, um, it means that every mode of knowledge has to be deployed almost at the same time um, simultaneously and uh, and vigorously. Um, we can no longer do uh, economics in the same way or we can't do, or laws have to be changed and they are being changed to give rights to non-humans. So sometimes slowly, sometimes more rapidly, but every field has to engage its truths in relation to the problem. Um, look, this is yeah, pretty much a Latourian position actually. I think so, yes, that this planetary crisis is so massive that it forces, on the one hand, a recognition of the reality of that crisis, but on the other hand, a recognition that one must relativise one's dominant epistemologies, query them, transform them. And I think that's a great answer to my provocation because it's something that's been bothering me a lot, the fact that what was once questioned uh, is now unquestioned, namely the authority of scientific knowledge. Uh, yeah. And I think also of some of, you know, the way in which the race for vaccines against COVID-19 was embraced by the cultural left, right, along with many others, as a matter of survival, right? And the people who were questioning big science were, you know, crazy right-wingers, as far as many of us were concerned, whereas yeah. that might have been us a few years earlier in some other field of contestation. Well, I had a couple more questions for you, Stephen, if I may, and then I'd like to give you the opportunity at the end to add anything or subtract anything <laughs> to our conversation. Does that sound all right? Yeah. Yep. So... The first question is, if you could tell us a little bit about this work that you're doing one day a week with the research centre in Broome in northern Western Australia. Okay, so that's a, um, that's a part of Notre Dame University, or Notre Dame, as the Americans would say. It has, um, it has campuses in Sydney, Fremantle in Western Australia, near Perth, and in Broome. It's a small very small campus. So I'm there because of my long association with that part of the world. Um, and um, I lost a job at a university called Flinders University, and I had a research, a research grant, so I moved it along with the research assistant and PhD student to, to Broome. And so once I got there, we cooked up another research project, which was called intergenerational knowledge transfer, and that was in particularly in relation to uh, knowledge of water. And the backstory behind that is protecting the major river 
um, that runs through the Kimberley called the Fitzroy River or the Marawara. And the traditional owner associated with that, a woman called Anne Paulina, who is a powerhouse uh, Indigenous leader, is my boss on that project. And she's trying to protect the river from the billionaires who are moving in, trying to extract water or just to extract value in terms of getting water licences for future trading. So that river could be in danger. So we're engaging with, uh, um, you know, there are six or seven of us on the project and a couple of them are more traditional people who aren't in the habit of reading and writing. I mean, they read and write for social media, but not academic stuff. And so we're... um, one of the challenges is to is to bring their knowledge into the project in ways that um, in ways that are equi- equitable and kind of work in terms of telling a telling a collaborative story. So that's mainly what I'm doing up there. Wow, what an amazing project! Fantastic. And the second question, my last one, is about the relationship between urban and rural life, because most of your life is lived in urban settings, but much of your work is not. And I wondered if you could address that. I'm coming up with a kind of a Barthian, Straussian binary there that you may reject, but that's my sense of knowing about your life a little bit. There's a... um... There's a kind of mythology of the bush in Australia which has not failed to influence me culturally. Um, it's, you know, it involves my father taking me on camping trips and sitting around campfire with him back in the day. And uh, he was a country boy, so he would teach me certain crafts to do with, I don't know, using an axe or something. Right. So, <laughs> so the next book might be. Stephen Mewkey with an axe in his hands on the front cover, for example. <laughs> so yeah, so that explains the kind of the love of yeah. um, the love of the of the country and wanting to go out there and well relax. I mean, it's um, it's uh, it's a, a lovely antidote to the uh, pressures of urban life um, to to be able to head out there. So I did that recently with a, um, a young fellow we took off from Adelaide and drove up to Broome and back through the middle of Western Australia, 10,000 kilometres, 10 days travelling. It was, um, yeah, it was epic. So I do that kind of thing. There's a line in The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, a Genesis record from the 70s. I'd rather trust a country man than a city man. I'd rather trust a man who worked with his hands. And I think that does capture a lot of the mythology that you get hugely in the United States, as much as in Australia, where real people are rural and urban people are fabricated. They're fabulated. And if you want to find your real self, you'll go somewhere else. And of course, interestingly, if you look at some of the key theorists of modernity from, you know, uh, Hegel through to Talcott Parsons, including Freud and Durkheim and Levi Strauss, 
they go to the indigenous to find what real people are like, minus the world of representative politics and heavy industry. That what real effective social organization is can be found there again and again and again in rural settings among indigenous people in ways that have been lost in urban modernity. Now, of yeah, course, none of these people wanted to go and live there. <laughs> they wanted to live in Chicago and Paris and so on. Yeah, so I don't want to live in Broome, for instance. The, um, in the uh, wet season at this time of year, in the summer, it's far too hot. So I'm, I become an urban snowflake and I head, head back to the city. <laughs> <laughs> what you say about the contrasting knowledges is uh, is what I found exciting. That uh, it's not it's not a romantic recuperation of such knowledge as if it were a solution, but but just the I don't know an alternative version of an economy that is an economy that exists in Broome, say, where people still have one foot outside of um, outside of the mainstream commodified um, wage-earning economy, you know, so that hence the love of uh, fishing and hunting because that's the way they say I can I can be myself um, as an Indigenous person and um, get enough food for the family for that night without having to go to Woolworths. Yeah. So thank you very much for that. And now I'd just like to throw it open to you if there are things that you would like to discuss that we haven't mentioned or something you you want to revisit. I've been doing a lot of uh, translating from the French, uh, a number of books, and I just wanted to mention um, one called Our Grateful Dead, Stories of Those Left Behind. So this is by Vinciane Desprez. So she's a colleague of Isabel Stangers in, in Brussels. She's an ethologist, an animal studies person. But in this book, she's looking at stories to do with um, posthumous existence. The argument being that, of course, dead people continue to exist, just in a very attenuated and different fashion. Um, and the the kinds of uh, rituals and practices that people have never given up, like funerals, or going and leaving flowers on the grave every anniversary, um, are evidence of this um, the continued role of that person in somebody's life post posthumously. Mm. So um, I liked um, our Grateful Dead. The English, the um, I liked, in fact, also that I got to. Um, Allude to the famous rock group. Yes, absolutely. Is that diff very different from the original French type? Au bonheur des morts. So uh -huh. that would be something like happiness or the uh, the dead or um, the delight of the dead or something. Something couldn't, like that. Couldn't, I couldn't think of a way of making it work. I love it. Not long before he died, I was at a show next to Jerry Garcia and he was wearing those Jerry Garcia ties that he had marketed that became, I guess, part of feeding his various interests in life, as it were. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of young people passed out on the ground 
listening to an, a sort of acid band called The Orb. And I was with my friend Andrew. And Andrew and Garcia and I were the only people standing. <laughs> a massive crowd in a ballroom. <laughs> so that sounds wonderful, and I shall certainly seek it out. Actually, yesterday I was in Barcelona and I recorded a podcast with Nuria Almiron about animal rights, and that's the one that's just mm-hmm. gone today. So I must, I, I need to learn about this book. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. It's been an extraordinary pleasure and delight, as always, to see you and to speak to you. And I hope that I can extract a promise from you to come back to the pod sometime in the future. I'd love to. That was a really interesting conversation. Thank you.